0: I invite you all to open up your Bibles to 2 Kings. We're going to be in 2 Kings 5, verse 1. While you're turning there, I'll pray for us. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the universal offer of the gospel. We thank you that you drew near to us uh, in Christ and have made it possible for us to draw near to you. Help us to be uh, humble before you, to to draw near and to experience all the gifts of salvation, forgiveness of sins, the cleansing of our conscience, and the joy of fellowship with you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 2 Kings 5.1, which reads, Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria he was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now, normally, we have a verse, and quite often, we'll uh, read the surrounding verses. We'll say, we're going we're to read the surrounding verses to get the context, and then we'll zero in on our verse for meditation. Uh, but tonight, we're going to do that, we're going to do it backwards, because our verse is the context. This verse is the context for understanding the rest of the story. 2 Kings 5.1 is the first verse of a new section in 2 Kings, and it gives, it introduces this character of Naaman, and it gives background knowledge about him, important historical context for reading the rest of the story. So so we're going to ask the question, right? If if verse 1 is the context for the rest of the story, we're going to ask, why are we told what we are told in verse 1? Why are we given these details? So we're going to unpack the details first. We'll we'll stop here at verse 1, and then after unpacking the details, we'll read the rest of the story, thinking all the while. How do the details of verse 1 play out in the rest of the story? Why are they important? And we're going to key that question to the fact that Jesus cites Naaman Uh, As an example, when he's responding to initial rejection of him early in his ministry in Luke 4, he cites the account of Naaman. And so we're going to ask that question to finish. Why is this story, with this particular context, why is it such an appropriate thing for Jesus to cite in Luke 4? So we'll start by looking at verse 1, looking at our context. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, He was a great man with his master in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. So here in this verse, we're introduced to Naaman, and we learn, broadly speaking, four things about him. There's actually lots to unpack here, but broadly speaking, we can say we learn four things about Naaman. First is, socially, he was important, right? He is commander of the army of the king of Syria. Now, uh, Syria was a northern uh, country just above uh, the northern kingdom, so just above Israel. And Syria was not uh, a minor player, relatively speaking. Relatively speaking, Syria was a prosperous nation. It wasn't, you know, uh, Ammon backwater. It was, this was Syria. You know its capital, Damascus. This was a prosperous place. I don't want to put it into State. I don't want to put our negative into state terms to offend anyone, but this was a California, it was a Texas, you know, it, it, it was a place with an actual city, a place that uh, had might and had wealth. And he was the highest general of the army of Syria. As the commanding general of a, uh, an army of a major nation, he probably lacked nothing from a societal standpoint. I mean, socially speaking, he had position and money. As that tends to go hand-in-hand hand with position, with that position, and with position and money, his life probably came with relative luxury and indulgence, right? You think in terms of modern celebrity. With that type of position and that type of nation, he probably lacked very little, materially speaking, uh, as far as things went back then. As far as material comforts and pleasures go, Naaman probably had access to all that he wanted to partake of, food, wine, women. He could afford the best because he was at the top of the social food chain. We also see, it says near the end, he was a mighty man of valor. Meaning from a personal standpoint, he was, he was gifted. Right? A mighty man of valor. He was brave and skilled. Right? Gifted by God. In fact, it's probably why he ended up attaining the position that he did, at least from the, the flow of history. He was good at his job. He was good at what he did, which was being a warrior. He was a valiant warrior. He could kill people, and he could lead. He was brave, assumed strong and athletic, gifted physical specimen with all the leadership skills and the psychological will to put it all to good use. I mean, some people, they just have it, right? And, And Naaman had it. He was a mighty man of valor. We also know he was accomplished. It says he was a great man with his master and in high favor, meaning the king liked him. The king liked him because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. Right? The king liked him, and the text gives us that little explanation because by him the Lord, Yahweh, had given victory to Syria. In other words, as far as being a general goes, Naaman was successful. He won battles. Even now, now notice we're we're given this note about God's sovereignty. Like the the author goes out of his way to say it was by him that the Lord gave victory to Syria, uh, and you you wonder at uh, certain points why are we given this note of God's sovereignty here? I mean, because that's always true. You can. You can mention God's sovereignty in any context, and it's always true. So why here? Why does he mention, why does the author of Kings mention God's sovereignty here? Probably for two reasons. The first, relative to Naaman for the story, is a sort of irony. Naaman was definitely not thinking this way, right? Naaman wasn't thinking, my success and my ability and my favor with my master is due to the Lord. But the author wants you to be thinking that way. He wants to remind you. I mean, we all know it theologically. I'm going to underline it. This success, this position is because of the Lord. But then probably the second reason that God's sovereignty is mentioned relative to us, the readers, and especially to ancient Israel readers is because of the nature of the victory that Naaman brought, right? He brought victory to Syria. What, what victory? Well, the most likely candidate is victory over Israel, right? The Syria and Israel... They had a love-hate relationship. There were times that they were allies. Uh, There were times they allied against Judah. There were times Judah and Syria allied against Israel. But for the most part, it was an acrimonious relationship, and they were constant back and forth. And so to say that Naaman brought victory to Syria is Naaman brought victory... Over Israel. In fact, we're going to see in the very next verse that Syria was going on raiding ban- you know, trips into in Israel borders, kidnapping maidens, as is right, what they did in warfare there. So the author makes a point of saying, look, he, he brought victory to Syria, victory over Israel. But that, uh, that too, is under God's sovereignty. Right? That is Uh, all under the umbrella of God's control of history. Naaman was an enemy of Israel and it's important to emphasize that in all he did, even as an enemy, that was under the sovereign control of the Lord. So Naaman didn't know it. That's going to be important. But it's also important that you know it, that you know that even as an enemy, even doing violence to Israel, he was under sovereign control of the Lord. So you get this tension right at the beginning, right from the beginning. Naaman caused suffering. He caused suffering to Israel. He goes on raids he has an Israelite maiden who was captured from one of those raids, right? He had renown in his own home country because of the suffering that he brought on the kingdom of Israel, right? He was a successful enemy of the people of God. And then finally, we're told that he was a leper. Now, the, w- the way that the text adds this detail is so abrupt and terse that it's, it's almost comical, right? In Hebrew, it's, it's literally only one word. It's not even a sentence. There's not even a conjunction. It doesn't even say and. It's just the word leper thrown on at the end, almost ungrammatical. It's almost like it was said with, you know, a whisper or a shrug or raising of the eyes, like, name it, commander of the armies of the king of Syria. He was a valiant man. He was well-loved by his master, leper, Right? Like, that's, that's how it is. It just, just pops there. What was that? Leper? Yeah, he was, a, he was a leper. So, why does it do that? Why does the text do it so punchily? I mean, it's not just a matter of fact presentation of historical details. Right? This is ironic, by the way. He was a leper. Right? Something about this kind of undercuts the, the building up of what we've seen so far. Right? To be a leper involves some measure of social stigma. Now, You guys know, your footnotes tell you, leprosy is not the technical disease leprosy necessarily or probably not. Uh, That's a broad term in the Bible to cover lots of different skin diseases, but usually what comes with it, depending on what type of leprosy we're dealing with, is some measure of social, like personal social stigma, probably made that difficult, and depending on what the actual malady was, usually physical suffering of some sort. I mean, even if it's just a persistent itch, like you, that sounds like, ah, oh, it's not too bad until you live that, until you live that and you have to bear under the weight of it, right? Painful, keeping you up at night, literally driving you mad. And for all Naaman's power and prestige and luxury, he was a leper and he couldn't buy his way out of that. There was nothing to do. But interestingly enough, this thing, this sword, this thorn in Naaman's side, this little footnote that he would rather not be there on his life, would ultimately bring him into contact with the Lord God. So now with that context, we're going to read the story. We'll read through the first 15 verses or so. Just Naaman's part of the story going on in Second Kings. We Keep in mind what we've been introduced to. And now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel. This is already interesting. Carried off a little girl. Earlier, we are told, Naaman, he's big. Naaman, he's great. And here, something's going to happen with this little, little person. Carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, Oh, would that my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, capital of Israel. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord. Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes... And said, am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. So you have to understand, Syria and Israel are not at open war. And, you know, like the raiding bands across borders, that was just, that's like normal day to day. So they're, they're not at open war at this point. But the king of Israel is, is seeing this as kind of like a political maneuver, right? You're you're asking me to cure your general of leprosy? I can't do that. You're seeking an excuse for war. you're, You're just seeking an occasion against me. He's freaking out. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elijah's house and Elijah sent a messenger to him. This already is great, right? Who are we dealing with? Naaman, as, as like high up in the social ladder as you can get, a general of an army in the ancient Near East, and he goes to see the prophet, and the prophet doesn't even come out and talk to him. Right? Like, it, like you imagine the insult at this. The prophet doesn't even come out and talk to him. He sends a messenger and saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. And Naaman was angry, went away saying, behold, I thought that surely he would come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. I was expecting some fanfare, magic, something. I was going to meet this amazing prophet. Instead, he says, go wash in the river. Are not Albana and Parpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean if it was so easy? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word that the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? I mean, didn't, did he really say, you go wash and be clean? Aren't you going to try? Aren't you even going to try? Will you not do it? Will you not go wash and be clean? And something about their words touched his heart. because Immediately it says, so Naaman went down, dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. But that's not the end of the story, Right? It's not just the removal of leprosy. See how Naaman, through the cleansing of his leprosy, is brought into contact with God. The story goes on. He returned to the man of God, he and all his company. And he came and stood before him, and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all earth but in Israel. So now accept a present from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, if not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. He's like, I want to take some dirt from Israel with me back home so I can make an altar because I do not want to worship or sacrifice to any god except for Yahweh from now on. And he, then he says, in this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master, the king, goes into the house of Rimon, the god of Syria, to worship there, and he leans on my arm, and I have to bow myself in the house of Rimon. When I bow myself in the house of Rimon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. And Elisha said to him, go in peace. Now, there, there, is, there is a... a, a a split on how to understand Naaman. The vast majority of church history has understood this to be a a conversion, has understood Naaman to be a positive character. There is a a split in in the Reformed world. You know, some people take this uh, not that way. You know, Calvin thought that Naaman was a convert, uh, but Jonathan Edwards thought that he was a hypocrite. I can't wade into all the details, but I think that we are to understand what happens with Naaman positively. I think the, the entire text is, deals with particularly the contrast between Naaman and, as it goes on, Gehazi, Elisha's servant, and the fact that Elijah says to him, Go at peace, this is a benediction. Right? This is a blessing. The text is very positive towards Naaman. And so here we have this previously proud, successful enemy of Israel, and he receives healing and a benediction from the prophet Go in peace. So his, this previously proud, successful enemy of Israel who had leprosy, that leprosy brought him into contact with the Lord God. And initially, he rebuffed. He rebuffed the instruction of the prophet and offended him. It offended him. Right? Just go wash in the river. And the prophet didn't even talk to me himself. He was offended in his pride. But when he humbled himself, when he humbled himself at the words of his servants and he obeyed the word of the Lord, he was healed. And he was brought into a desire to worship the one true God, and he was told to go in peace. Now, interestingly, we mentioned at the beginning, Jesus cites this story. He cites this story right at the beginning of his ministry. You remember in Luke chapter 4, he gets up in the synagogue, and he reads from the great scroll of Isaiah, and he says, today in your midst this has been fulfilled, and initially... Uh, the people are positive towards him. They're like, wow, this is, you know, this well-spoken guy. And we're, we're impressed with his, his language and his grace. Uh, but then things start to turn. In Luke chapter 4, they said, is this not Joseph's son? Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What, have we, what we have heard you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. So something turned, right? And they asked this question, is this not Joseph's son? And you can understand from what's happening in the context. Uh, it is made explicit in the parallels in Mark and in John where it says they took offense at him. They said, how can, how can he say that he's come down from heaven? As it says in John and in Mark, they took offense at him. Because isn't this just Joseph's son, right? This is just Jesus. We we know him. It's just Jesus. They took offense at what he was saying. And then he says, but in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all the synagogue was filled with wrath. Why, why does he cite that? Right? So obviously, generally speaking, you have the widow of Zarephath and Naaman. Both are occasions of People accepting the prophet, of accepting the word of God, particularly in the context of the rest of Israel, the rest of the people rejecting, and the fact that they were foreigners. Right? So you've got these foreigners who, when the rest of Israel, by and large, is rejecting the word, they're accepting. But then you also have this extra point of contact with Naaman, because you look at the whole story, what we're told right at the beginning... Great, big, important man, enemy of Israel. Naaman had to be humbled, right? You see it in the story. Elisha deliberately doesn't go out to speak to him. It offends him. Naaman is incensed, and he expected more fanfare. Go dip in the water. It's just a river. It's just a river. I want a divine display of power. God spoke to his heart through his servants. Won't you just go? Naaman had to be humbled. He had to humbly accept the means that God had offered to him, the salvation, the healing that was being put before him. But he had to be humbled to accept it. He was the least likely person from a worldly standard of someone who would receive a miraculous healing from God. But when he humbled himself, when he went down to the river, this persecutor of Israel, this foreign warrior, this high-born, indulgent aristocrat was healed of his leprosy. And in fact, that leprosy was the means of bringing him into contact with the living God. Jesus cites this example in Luke 4 of God showing mercy, particularly in a context where people were saying of him, it's just Jesus, right? It's just Jesus. It's just a river. This is it? This is just, it's just the carpenter's son. We, we expected more, Jesus says no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. There's something about the familiarity and particularly the pride in the heart of the people that prevents them from accepting God's gracious work. Right? Jesus coming to them, the incarnation, is a kindness. The last, you know, I want fanfare. The last time you got fanfare at Mount Sinai, you ran screaming, saying, don't talk to us. We don't want to hear. We're too afraid. And so God draws near. And they say, just the carpenter's son too humble, too usual, too normal. It's too normal. It can't be that easy. It can't just be Jesus, the Word of God. My friend reading the Bible with me over coffee, that can't really be God's speech to me. It's way too mundane. Go wash in a river. Come on. It's got to be more. It's just a river. It's just Jesus. You see, the tragic irony, the Israelites were rejecting the offer of the healing and salvation for their souls because the source seemed too mundane. It seemed too easy, too accessible, just like Naaman initially rejected the offer of physical healing for the same reasons. It can't be that easy. But in fact, this is the gentle invitation of the Bible. Just go to the river. Just go to Jesus. Even Naaman, enemy of Israel, foreigner, self-sufficient, proud man, could go. He could come and receive healing when he humbled himself before the word of God. And when he did, he did receive that healing. Come to Jesus. It can't be that easy. That's your pride in you, keeping you from healing for your soul. Commune with Jesus. How? Through his word in prayer, worshiping together with the local church, it can't be that easy. Yes, humble your proud heart. Humble yourselves before the Lord. God offers you rest. He offers you rest for your soul. Can it be so easy as trusting Jesus? Can having his grace to me be so easy as gathering together with other believers, reading the Bible, praying, worshiping together? Can it be so easy? It is all at once that easy and yet the hardest thing in the world Because our hearts are proud and offended by the grace of God. But no matter who we are, salvation is available to those who come. Maybe, maybe it's precisely those whispered addendums, those footnotes to your life that cause you so much pain and trial. Those are exactly the means that God uses to humble you so that you'll come, so that you will come to Jesus. Maybe it's good that someone whispers under their breath, they're a leper maybe that's what we'll bring you. Or maybe you're, you're not naming it at all. Maybe you say, my hurts and pains, they're not a footnote. They are the banner of my life. They are stamped all over the halls of my history. My victories are the footnote, or they're non-existent. My life is pain and suffering. Even still, the promise holds true. If you will humble your heart, if you will accept the simple promise to take Jesus of Nazareth at his word, He will heal your hurts, and you will know God. You will find healing for your soul like you never believed possible. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that you save all types and all kinds and that you have made your salvation so accessible that you have drawn near to us in your Son and that we only need to take him at his word. We only need to come to him and receive washing and cleansing for our consciences, cleansing for our souls. So I do ask now that if there are those here who have not yet come to you, that have not yet humbled their hearts to take you at your word, uh, that they would do so, that uh, people would come, that they would be healed and they would be saved, that they would know you, and that all of us would increase in our confidence in knowing you. Grow us in our faith, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.